Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Please uh, turn to page 714 in your pew Bible. Um, the scripture today is Luke 13:10. Jesus healed the crippled woman. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. great to see you all on this beautiful spring day, right? Snow has melted, and uh, it's, I don't know, maybe a little, well, it was warmer yesterday anyway, and so we'll, we'll uh, s- settle for that, I guess. Um, before we get started in the message, there's something I want to do. Uh, we're going to start doing something new, and I think we're going to do it monthly. And uh, so you guys, in your bulletin, you should have a yellow sheet here that says, Recognizing God Moments. And uh, what this is, we're going we're gonna to call these pulse surveys, because uh, these are a way that we want to take the pulse of our congregation. And, uh, and the reason we're doing this is because, of course, we want to hear from you, and, and oftentimes, you know, we have personal conversations in that, but we want to get sort of a broad picture of uh, what life is like to be in this congregation, you know, how you guys are growing and, and all of that. And so monthly, we're going to take a little bit of time in worship service for you guys to be able to give us some feedback. And they're very simple. Uh, it's, they'll all be probably just three or four questions, uh, a lot of check boxes there that, that you can check, so they're simple there. But there will be one question that we would love if you can give us sort of an essay answer or uh, even just a shorthand thing to to know what's going on in your life. And, uh, and one of the things, one of the reasons why we're doing this uh, is because we also believe in the power of testimony. And, uh, and we want other people to see what's happening in the life of our congregation as well. And this will allow us to be able to hear from you guys the things that are going on because we would love to do testimonies every single week, uh, but we don't always know what's happening. And, uh, and so this is our way of coercing you into telling us what's going on in your life. 
No, actually, you, I mean, you can fill it out or not if you want, either way. Uh, notice on the bottom of the sheet, there is also a QR code. If you would rather fill it out digitally, you can just scan that with your phone, and you can, we've got a digital form there that, that you can do it there. And, uh, and so what we're going to do is we're actually going to take about three or four minutes right now uh, to fill it out. We'll put a little music on. So pull it out, uh, pull out a pen, hymn book there to, to write on, um, or your phone, and uh, let's just take a few minutes and fill this out. When you get done with it, you can either uh, put it in the offering box at the back of the sanctuary, or you can put it in, the, uh, in a, the basket at the connection station. If you didn't get a bulletin, Holly is coming around, and, uh, and she has one for you. You can just raise your hand and, uh, and uh, get it from her. So we're just going to take a few minutes to do that here quickly. All right, hopefully you had time to, to get through that. You know, when I, was, when I was in elementary school, when we had a, a, a test or something like that, they would always have us put our head down on our desk and put our thumbs up. And uh, we won't make you guys do that. Uh, but it seemed like a lot of you were through that. Otherwise, you've got just a little bit of, of time to be able to do that. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing that. We'd love to be able to hear from you, uh, to be able to respond to, to your needs and, uh, you know, kind of the ways that you feel like you are growing and that you still need to grow. Uh, to that end, we, uh, we do have someone who's going to come up and share this morning, Rebecca Ballard. And uh, we just heard through a small group, I guess, um, a story that, that she told about how God works through uh, church community. And uh, so we wanted her to come and just to share that very quickly. I mean, not, you don't have to share really quickly. <laughs> I'll try. I, I tend to ramble sometimes, so I'll try to be concise. Um, but... Our uh, prayer request that was answered very clearly over the last few months was um, when I was about to have my son, Ethan, my husband, Casey, and I were praying about, do I go back to work? How many days do I go back to work? Um, it's our third child. What should this look like? And at the time, I was working four days a week, and we really felt like two days a week would be a good kind of amount of time for me to work for our family. However, our child care only provided um, a minimum of three days a week, so that felt very overwhelming for me to think of who would watch our kids the other two days. Um, so we asked our small group to pray for us. And a couple weeks after Ethan was born, I brought Audrey, our daughter, up to nursery. And Connie just happened to say, did you find anyone to watch your kids? I talked with our family, and we would be willing to, to help watch your kids. And it was one of those moments where you could just, I just felt the Holy Spirit almost like, wow, that, what? That is totally an answer to prayer. And of course, my first question is, how many are you willing to watch? Because <laughs> there's three now. <laughs> um, and of course, Connie and her great spirit is very flexible with us. And um, she has one day under her belt now with, with two of our kids. And um, it's going, going well. And we're really excited. But um, like Corey said, just a really great way for, um, a really cool way to show how someone using their gifts and strengths in the church and to her, it seems like no big deal. Um, but for us, it was a huge deal and very life-impacting. So, um, yeah, that's my answered prayer. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Becca. Yeah, so the, so the question that we had um, on, the, on the surveys today 
were basically about how, where do you see God working? And that's one of those things where it's, it's kind of a, a mundane thing. It's an everyday uh, thing in life. But we believe that through the church community that God works that way. It doesn't seem very supernatural, but it's someone hearing about a need and responding to that need and, uh, and being able to work it out. And that's very much what it means to be a part of the church community. And it's, you know, part of it is, is you know, the kindness of, of Connie and the Hansons. Uh, and part of it is, is just God speaking and working through his people. And, uh, and so I think recognizing that is, uh, is always a good thing that can grow our faith. All right, into the message. Last week was Easter, and we have skipped our way all the way through the book of Luke. You remember the, the story of Easter takes us all the way through Luke 24, and, and there was a lot of material as we go through the book of Luke, a lot of material that we, that we skipped. Um, and so we're actually, even though we've made it to the end of the book, we're going to go back and pick up on some of the material that we left behind because we were trying to time it out to, uh, to get to Easter. And most specifically, we're going to go back and look at many of what was Jesus's most common or favorite teaching methods, parables. Now, parables are very popular with people. I think some of them, uh, some of the reason is, is because they seem very simple. Uh, Oftentimes, they're stories. The ones that we have today are not necessarily stories, but oftentimes they're stories and people learn very well through stories. Whatever reason, it seems like people really like parables. But the trouble is, is that we often misunderstand parables. Uh, You see, sometimes we think that Jesus tells parables because they have a very clear meaning. And sometimes that's the case. But actually, in the book of Mark and Matthew, Jesus actually says that he speaks in parables so that people won't understand, which seems kind of a strange thing. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes parables can be really confusing. Uh, For instance, have you ever read the parable of the shrewd manager? Okay. If, you, if, you have, if you haven't, let me give you a little bit of a summary, all right? Basically, there's a guy, a manager, who gets fired because he's a terrible manager. And, uh, and so the owner of the company says, all right, you're out of here. And, and, uh, and the man says, well, I'm, I'm too young to retire and I'm too old. It's going to be really hard for me to get another job, so what can I do? And so he goes around to the people who owe his boss money and gives them steep discounts in order to get in their good graces. And so basically what he does is he, uh, he basically increases his reputation by defrauding his, uh, his, the owner of the company. And Jesus says, you should be like that. Right, <laughs> which seems like kind of a strange thing for Jesus to say, and, and so you have to really work, you have to really use your imagination to try to understand what he's trying to say. So if parables were always clear, then we probably wouldn't have a parable like the, the, uh, the shrewd manager. Well, when I was growing up in Sunday school, uh, my Sunday school teachers would oftentimes describe parables by saying they were earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, yeah, a few of you have heard that before. Um, and, and it makes it sound like they are just kind of almost like uh, Aesop's fables or things that communicate good morals or just they're just common sense or something like that. Uh, and while Jesus' uh, par- early parables tend to be a little bit more cryptic, as he gets toward the end of the Gospels, they actually become, well, I think what you would call pointed and inflammatory. For instance, 
he tells a parable called the parable of the tenants. And, uh, and he tells this after he goes into Jerusalem and, you know, he's starting to have uh, sort of a heightened uh, dispute with the, with the uh, Pharisees. And he tells them this story. He's, it's a story of a landowner who had some tenants who were uh, renting land from him. And he went to send his, ten, send his uh, servants to go collect rent from the tenants. And when they did, the tenants beat him up and basically didn't give him what they owed him. And he did that a couple of times, or actually three times. And then finally, the owner sent his own son. And not only did they not give him the money, but they also killed him. And, uh, and basically, this parable was very clear, and it was very clear to the Pharisees because what was their response? It made them start to make some actual real plans to kill him because they knew that he was talking about them. And so that one was clear. It was pointed, but not necessarily a, a story about good morals or common sense. Okay? Well, uh, parables, actually, were not unique to Jesus. They were a common uh, teaching method in Jesus' time. They were something that rabbis used all the time. And in fact, there were kind of three different types of uh, ways of teaching that the rabbis used. One of them was called halakha. And halakha is basically what we see in the written law. It prescribes certain behaviors and prohibits others. Uh, the second kind is what we call midrash. And midrash is basically an explanation of the law that helps people apply that law in a particular situation. So for instance, when we're going through the book of Luke and I'm explaining what it means, that's essentially midrash. Okay, there are some differences, but that's kind of what, what midrash does. The third kind of teaching is what they called Haggadah. And, uh, and this is where parables would fit in. Uh, Haggadah is oftentimes referred to as handles for the law. In other words, you can bring them with you. And oftentimes it's because they're easy to remember. They're oftentimes stories. They're, they're, uh, they, and, and probably most of all, it's because they appeal to emotions and they spark our imagination. Now, I know that for a lot of people, the word imagination is kind of a dirty word when it, when it comes to uh, Christianity or when it comes to their faith because they associate imagination with make-believe. Uh, it, because if it's not real, then it's imagined. But this is actually a misunderstanding of how people think, about how we know things. You see, ever since the time of the Enlightenment, we've valued rationality. In fact, we've probably overvalued it. Uh, and, and don't misunderstand, I think rationality is a good thing. It's, it's that thing that helps us to analyze and take things apart and, and understand how they work. But the truth of the matter is, is without emotions, no matter how well we understand something, we wouldn't have the motivation to actually do anything about it or to, to fix it. And without imagination, we can never free ourselves from the ruts that rationalistic thinking can sometimes get us in and find creative solutions for the problems that we have. So not only do we need our, our rational faculties, but we also need our emotions and we need imagination. And the rabbis actually knew that we are not just rational beings, that we actually primarily operate by intuition. And so parables tap into that part of our brain. They spark our imagination about God and the kind of world that he wants us to live in. And then it motivates us to be able to live accordingly. And so parables are actually very useful because they tap into something deep inside of us as humans. Now, when Jesus speaks about parables, he almost always is speaking about the kingdom of God. And just to refresh your memory, the kingdom of God is basically shorthand for God's rule in the world. 
Uh, it's the way that God wants the world to operate. And it's closely related to the Old Testament or the Hebrew term shalom, where uh, everyone is whole and in right relationship with each other and with God. And so when, when Jesus uh, spoke about the kingdom of God, when he spoke about parables, that's what he was talking about. And the Bible says that the kingdom of God is something that we can experience in a little way or in a limited way right now, but, but will only come in its fullness after the return of Christ. And this is something that, that uh, Jewish people knew. They knew, uh, even though they had differing ideas about how it would come, uh, they knew that it would be the Messiah that would bring in uh, the, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, when he was telling parables about the kingdom, he was challenging many of the common notions that people had about the kingdom of God and what it would look like. Now, before we get into the parables for today, one more little note um, about parables. And it's this, is that parables almost never stand on their own. Uh, We like to read them as their own thing and think that we can fully understand them. But parables actually uh, happen... Uh, uh, explain something that just happened in the story. That's why we read the narrative earlier before we got to the parables that we're going to study today. Uh, in this case, Jesus tells, uh, uh, or the parables are an explanation of a confrontation that happens between Jesus and a synagogue leader. Okay, so let's set the scene here, and, uh, and then we'll dive into the parables. Jesus was teaching in a Jewish synagogue, Uh, And the the Jewish synagogue would be sort of the equivalent of a Christian church or Christian worship service. So what was happening there was basically Jesus was speaking at their worship service on the Sabbath. He was basically doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, And while he was teaching, he happened to notice a woman in the congregation that we find out, that Luke tells us, had been hunched over for 18 years. Luke says, describes it this way, that she had a spirit that had crippled her. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that. It could mean that that she had a demon of some sort that was oppressing her, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that because in the biblical world, any kind of sickness or disease is ultimately the end result of a world that is disordered or controlled by Satan and the principalities and powers. And so if you remember, according to Luke, Jesus' ministry is a ministry of releasing people, about bringing them freedom. And so it would bring them freedom from sickness spiritual, physical, and, uh, and uh, social bondage, okay? And so when he noticed her, he called her up front, and he said, woman, you are free from your ailment. And when he laid hands on her, immediately she stood up straight, and she grabbed a basketball, and she dunked it. <laughs> I was just seeing if you were paying attention. No, what did she do? She started praising God, which, of course, is the appropriate response to, uh, to, you know, this miraculous healing. Now, as you can imagine, this would be pretty disruptive in a service, okay? Uh, not just for a moment, but even, even after that, e- even after everything settled down again, how much do you think people would have really listened after that? Okay, here, let me give you an example. Um, when I was growing up, I was in youth group, uh, we had a church very much like this, and we one Sunday we lit the Advent candle, and we, just like we do here, we had a family go up, and they would do a reading, poem, scripture reading, and all of that, and then they would light, uh, light the, the, uh, the Advent candle. And uh, I can remember one particular Sunday, I was sitting probably, and actually a whole row of youth were sitting about right where Loretta is right now, and, uh, and uh, 
they did all the readings in that, and then the mom lit the camera, and she was pretty notorious. This was the 80s, remember. She was pretty notorious for wearing a lot of hairspray. And uh, so as soon as they, uh, they lit that, and I think it was probably actually a match, her hair just burst into flames. And, uh, and you know, there were screams in the congregation from women, and, and, uh, and we were, the youth group was sitting in the front, and we just thought it was hilarious. You know, they got it out, they got it out really quickly, but, I mean, we were just laughing and laughing and laughing. And I will tell you, they were sitting, like the family was sitting right across the aisle from us, and it was all we could do just to keep ourselves from chuckling the, the rest of the time, right? Because it was disruptive. And, and I can imagine that, uh, that this is probably what would have happened when Jesus heals this woman. That, that how can you listen to a sermon after you had just seen a woman who had been hunched over with a spirit for 18 years suddenly be healed, okay? So you can understand this is a moment that disrupted what they were planning to do. And so, of course, then the synagogue leader, who's kind of like the pastor, was mad about that. And he was mad because Jesus did it on the Sabbath and did it during their worship service. And of course, there are rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And so to return a sense of order to his service, he actually speaks up. But he speaks up not to Jesus, but to the members of his congregation, to members of his synagogue. And, and let me give you a little paraphrase of what, he, of what he says. It's basically this. He says, don't get me wrong. I'm glad this woman was healed. But, come on, you guys, there are six other days that you could have done that. So why do you have to come in here and do that kind of stuff on the Sabbath when, when we're, the purpose that we're trying to fulfill here is we are studying the Word. This is the Word of God. It's sacred. And you come in here and mess it up. Six other days you could have done this. And we spend one day, just this Small amount of time studying the Word of God, right? So you can kind of see where he's coming from a little bit, at least, right? But what's interesting about it and, and why his reaction is wrong is really a, probably a couple of different reasons. Uh, the first thing is that it actually doesn't say that the woman came to the synagogue in order to be healed. I mean, she could have just been there for the same reason that everyone else was, to hear the Word of God. And she just happened to be uh, crippled at the time. And so then Jesus calls her up there to heal her, and the synagogue leader instead yells at her rather than Jesus. But I think more importantly, for Jesus, this demonstrated some very mixed up priorities. Because he was more concerned about the proper following of Sabbath law, more concerned about propriety in their worship service than he was about the woman's condition. Because for the synagogue leader, her healing messed up his ministry. But for Jesus, this woman was the ministry. And if you remember back in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is just beginning his public ministry, uh, he went into his home synagogue and he made his mission statement, essentially, from the scroll of Isaiah. Remember what he said? He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, while we might be able to understand a little bit about what the synagogue leader was trying to do, he was acting consistently with what his priorities, the priorities that he had been taught. But Jesus was actually going back to the original intent of the law in the first place. 
And at the same time, he was doing what he said he was going to do in the first place. He was fulfilling his mission by setting people free from what bound them. So, of course, Jesus can't leave this alone, and his rebuttal then takes them back to the Sabbath law. And the first thing he does is he shows the inconsistency of how they follow it. You know, notice what he says here. He says, you guys take care of your farm animals on the Sabbath. You untie them and lead them to water. And then he compares the woman to the farm animals. Verse 16, he says, then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, like a real human being, a person who's one of you, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. Right? Now, you see what he's saying. It seems pretty apparent, right? If you do this for farm animals, don't you think we should be able to do this for people? An eternally valuable child of God? And I think he was probably you know, bringing their minds back to, you know, you know what the Sabbath was for to begin with? I mean, the Sabbath was actually to, to set people free from, from the bondage of constant work and constant production. And, and this woman had been in bondage for 18 years, and the Sabbath is actually the perfect day to set her free. So he's taking them back to the, the original intent of the law. Now, that's the scene where Jesus tells these two parables. And the parables are intended to get us thinking in a more general way about what just happened, okay? So let me read them again and refresh your memory, and let's look at them in light of what we just read. Verse 18, Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now again, Jesus is taking this very specific situation that he was in and he's arguing in a sort of general way or he's explaining in a general way, here is why I did what I did. And he's inviting us, because he's telling us in parables, he's inviting us to make connections in our minds between those two things. Okay, so what are the connections? That he's inviting us to make. Well, the thing about parables is that there's oftentimes not sort of a right interpretation of them. And I'm going to talk about three things, and I'm not telling you this is the exact right way to interpret them. Maybe there are other things that, that as you sort of imagine the connections, it, it comes up with something a little bit different. But these are the things that, that went through my head, and hopefully you can kind of see my, my thought process uh, as, we, as we do this. The connections that it makes between the two, okay? Let me, let me talk about it kind of in three statements, okay? The first one is this. Is that Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God works from the invisible to the visible, from the spiritual to the physical. Now, what Jesus is doing, especially in, this, in the first parable, is he's painting a word picture of the kingdom of God. And it looks like this. Is that there's a power, that there's something that's working beneath the, the surface, and there's a structure that works above the surface, okay? This is how plants are. There are roots, there, you know, this starts with a seed, and then there are roots, and then there's a plant above, and it creates some structure that you can see, but there's actually a lot that under the surface that you can't necessarily see. And the kingdom of God has both. It has the power underneath, and it has the physical manifestation of it, okay? So, 
When we talk about the kingdom of God, what is the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God? Anyone know? The church. The physical manifestation of the kingdom of God is the church. Now, one of the things that we find is that there are two errors when it comes to these two parts of the kingdom. One of them is to try to have the power of God without the church, and the other is to try to have the church without the power of God. And here's what I mean. Um, over the last few years, it's become very common for people to, to describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. In other words, the only thing that matters is that God is working in my own life individually. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them I really understand. One of them I think is, you know, probably not as understandable. Uh, the first one is this, is that we just happen to live in an individualistic society. In, in fact, any study, any uh, uh, polls or whatever, studies that, that look at this, uh, usually ranks the U.S. in among the top three individualistic countries in the world. And what this means is that our country emphasizes personal freedom almost above anything else. And so that leads people then to think individualistically about our faith as well. Because what matters then is my own individual faith. And so if the doctrines or the organization or, or the structure or the community of the church benefits my individual faith, then I'll go along with it. But as soon as it stops, uh, as soon as I'm not feeling it, then I'll try to find something else. So that's one reason why people just are spiritual but not religious. But the second reason is one that I think is a little bit more understandable. And it's that some people have legitimate hurt from past church experiences. They've been part of a controlling or toxic church environment that, that left them maybe even questioning their very faith. And many people who experience this aren't just shallow consumers, but they were people who were, were all in, people who bought into the whole system. They were committed because they love Jesus and they want to they serve God and his kingdom. But then in the middle of all of that, something happened, something toxic happened, whether it was uh, abuse or some kind of trauma or toxic relationships uh, that now cause anxiety or you know, maybe it was overly restrictive rules or expectations that, that choke out any freedom or joy that people find in church. And that's a case of a church that's actually hindering the work of God. And it happens more than we would like to admit. And I, I know, because I've talked to a number of people who have a very difficult time stepping into a church sanctu sanctuary without feeling a sense of anxiety and just this sense that they just want to get out of there. People who love Jesus, but just have a really hard time because of past experiences. And when someone breaks free from an environment like that, it feels really freeing. You know, they feel like they can breathe again. But the problem is, is that individual faith is almost impossible to maintain in the long term. It's because we need more than just a personal faith in God. We need a community of people. And we need the structures around it for our faith to maintain its shape. It's, it's kind of like your body needs a skeleton. Okay, if it doesn't have a skeleton, then it just falls into a, a clump. And that's what the structures and habits and practices and rituals of the church are to your faith. They keep it from devolving into simply just doing whatever we feel like at the time. And so those visible structures are necessary. We need what's under the surface. We need the power of God. 
But we also need what's visible, those things to, to order our world as well. But here's the thing, is that those structures are not the point. They exist to serve the people. And for the church to be the church, it has to be rooted in the kingdom of God. I mean, there are lots of structures around that do things that, that are kind of like what the church does, whether it's, you know, feeding the poor or providing a community of support, but they aren't churches because they're not rooted in the word of God. And they're not rooted in Christ and his teachings. So think about the story that we just looked at with Jesus. Okay, there's the structure in the organization, the synagogue, the, the service that's happening at the time, the reading of the word, the expounding of the law. Okay, those, are the, those are the visible things. And when the woman shows up, Jesus lays his hand on her and the spirit of God works beneath the surface. We don't understand how it works, but it works. And, and she's healed. And Jesus says, this is the most important thing in this moment. Okay, now that doesn't mean that Jesus believed then that he, they could just do away with all of the structures or the organization. He was actually participating in the synagogue. And Luke says that he did that every Sabbath. But he wanted to make sure that the visible structures of the church actually served the spiritual purposes of God. And when the structure no longer serves that spiritual reality, it's not time to do away with the structures. But we do need to be willing to reform or find new structures that reflect the values of the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is saying is, is that the kingdom actually grows from invisible, from the power of God to visible. Second, the kingdom of God starts small and grows through humble service. Now I've mentioned before that the Jewish people expected that the Messiah would be a political or a military leader who would come in, in worldly power and oppress the or, and uh, and free them, overwhelm the oppressor of the day. You know, because that's how regime changes work in, in our world. And so it's understandable when Christians will say something like, well, if the kingdom of God is such a great thing, and if people find so much life in it, then it would make, any sen- it would make sense that we would try to bring in the kingdom by any and all possible means. And Christians have certainly done that in the past. But Jesus says, you know what? That's not the way the kingdom of God grows. It's not through earthly power. It's not through military or political power. Instead, it's through the power, the same power that healed this woman. That's the power that will bring about the kingdom. And if you look at how the early church grew, especially in the first few hundred years, that's exactly what happened. You know, started with a lower middle class guy who also happened to be, the, uh, happened to be God in the carnate, incarnate. And what did he do? Well, he gathered up a, a group of blue collar workers to be his disciples And he teaches them for a few years, but they don't really get it. They kind of get it, but they really don't. And so he's got this, you know, kind of fledgling little group there. And then he goes into Jerusalem and comes into conflict with the worldly powers of the day in Jerusalem. And they end up killing him. And he's buried. Of course, seeds need to be buried to grow, right? And he stayed in the ground for a few days, but then he sprung up from the ground. And when he did, all of a sudden, branches began to appear. And the roots grew deeper. And depending on the conditions, sometimes it grew fast and sometimes it grew slowly. Sometimes it was fast, like on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached a message and 3,000 people were saved. And other times, during persecution, 
the growth was very slow and maybe happened a little bit more underground. But as more people followed Jesus, they started to form structures to share their faith and to learn and strengthen and challenge believers. And as the faith moved out into the Roman Empire, it took different forms. And as Christianity became more accepted in the empire, then the the institution, the structure became actually more institutional and more robust. And there were times when it worked, and there were times when it really needed to be reformed. The hierarchies and the cathedrals that were built during that time served the church, but they weren't the church itself. And since then, since the time the church was able to accumulate worldly power, it's tried to grow through shock and awe, through military might. That's what you get when you, uh, when you uh, like with the, with the Crusades, or through political might. That's what you get when uh, you get the Inquisition when you try to do that, when you try to convert people to Christianity through force. Or there are times when we try to co-opt the government to serve the purposes of the church. And Jesus says, this is not the way the church operates. This is not the way the kingdom of God grows. The visible kingdom of God, the church, if it's real, if it's rooted in Jesus, if it really grows from the seed of the kingdom of God, then it should look like the kingdom of God and it should grow according to the values of the kingdom of God. It should grow in the same way that leaven grows, uh, grows dough. Okay? Like the early believers who loved and served their neighbors in Jesus' name. And as they moved throughout the empire, they planted churches in their homes throughout their new cities. And they had no choice but to rely on the power of God as the thing that grew the church. In fact, here's how one of the early disciples, one of the early Christians describes the church. He says, Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own or use a strange dialect or live out of the ordinary. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities according to the lot assigned to each. And they show forth the character of their own citizenship in a marvelous and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs in what they wear and what they eat and in the rest of their lives. They live in their respective countries but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens And they endure all things as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose them once they are born. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives they supersede the laws. They are impoverished and make many rich. To put the matter simply, what the soul is to the body, this is what Christians are to the world. This is how Jesus said the kingdom of God grows. And sometimes we've done this well, and sometimes we have not. But the kingdom grows by starting small and infiltrating its environment through humble acts of service. Finally, one of the things that Jesus is, one of the points that Jesus is making with this parable is that One of the things that the church does is it provides shelter and nourishment for the world. Notice that in both parables, the tremendous growth actually has a greater purpose. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, it grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. In other words, the tree provided rest and a home and nourishment for the birds. You know, here Jesus is bringing up um, 
bring up visions from the prophet Ezekiel when he writes about the community of the Messiah where he says this. He says, birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. You see, Ezekiel had in mind the Gentiles and certainly Luke had in mind the Gentiles too, but also anyone else whose society left behind, including the religious leaders and the religious structures of the day. Or think about the other parable, the yeast in the dough. Jesus doesn't say it explicitly, but what is dough for? It's to eventually bake it into bread to feed people. And the amount of flour that Jesus says that, that is used is enough to feed well over a hundred people. See, these parables indicate that the growth of the kingdom, the growth of the church happens not just for ourselves, but it exists for a greater purpose in the world. And so I guess the question then is, is what does this mean for, for us? Well, let me talk about a few applications. You might be able to come up with something a little bit different. I won't spend a lot of time on them. Mostly I'm just going to ask you three questions for you to reflect on. Uh, I don't think the questions are very hard to understand, but I also think that they're very important. But even more important is not just the answers that we come up with, but what do we do with it? Because Jesus' parables were always a call to action for us. It's a call to elicit some sort of change in how we live. And so let me ask you just three questions. First, do I focus on the structure and ritual of my faith and neglect the power of God? See, for many of us, the, the primary focus of our faith is on the things that we do. Okay, we go to worship service, we go to small group, we read the Bible and all of that. But in our everyday lives, as we interact with people, we're not really looking for the power of God working in the lives of the people around us. Or sometimes this is reflected in our prayer lives. You know, when we, when we fail to pray, we, I think, don't realize the amount of power that is available to us when we stay in tune with God. And so a danger for us is always just focusing on the, the rituals and the things that we do, the practices, as good as they are. If we have the church without the power of God, then we don't really have the church. Second, in what ways am I tempted to grow the kingdom of God through worldly power? Now, I, I don't, we don't have any politicians or people in any kind of position of power that way. But, but there are often times when, when we think that the kingdom of God should grow through other means. And I actually don't think that there's anything wrong with being involved in politics as long as we understand that politics are not kingdom work. Now, we might be able to accomplish some good things, some things that are maybe in line with the kingdom. Uh, but if it doesn't come with the proclamation of the gospel, then good works are not the kingdom works, okay? Because good works done in the name of Jesus, those are our kingdom works. So am I tempted to grow the kingdom of God through worldly power? Finally, do I focus on church and neglect people? Again, some of us are very religious in the sense that we do a lot of, a lot of religious stuff. We go to worship service, small group, read our Bible, all of those things. Uh, but our religious practice sometimes is only for our own growth. We're only thinking of ourselves. And I think whole churches can fall into this as well, including us. Okay, we have our programs and we focus a lot of attention on Sunday morning worship service rather than bringing life to our neighbors or rather than uh, engaging with one another and talking about what is it that God is doing in our midst and what is he trying to, to do through us as well. 
Because we have to understand that, that we exist for more than just our own personal growth. The church actually exists for what is outside the church. We have the same mission that Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loves the world. And so the question is, is do we love the world in that same way? Is that what motivates what we do inside the church and outside the church? So I want you to take some time and reflect on those questions, uh, not necessarily here, but maybe today when you go home or tonight before you go to bed, reflect on them and, uh, and see what changes God might call, be calling you to make uh, through these parables. Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for the parables that, that we just read that give us more insight into, uh, into your kingdom and, and how you might want, to be, uh, want the, your kingdom to grow in this world. And God, for, for those of us who are leaders who are tempted to just focus on the physical structures and neglect the power of God, Lord, I, I pray that, that you would just work powerfully, that you would just remind us again of, of why we do what we do, that it's not just to maintain structures and ministries and programs and things, but it's about a ministry of, of releasing people from bondage, whether it's spiritual or relational or you know, the power of, you know, all of the things that, that bind us, the power of the idols of our world. And so I pray, God, that we would be sensitive to your work. I pray that not only would we understand your kingdom better, but that we would do what we can to be willing to make the changes to align ourselves with what you're doing in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.